0: Welcome to this podcast for February's edition of DTB, Volume 53, Number 2. My name is David Fizakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor.
1: Hello, and I'm James Cave. I'm a DTB Editor-in-Chief.
0: Our editorial this month revisits the theme of medicines optimization, and we have a look at what progress has been made in England. Um, first question, James, what do we mean by medicines optimization?
1: Well, I think uh, that's a very good question. I mean, what I think the NHS is trying to do is to ensure that medicine's use is properly focused on what patients need. So it's it's about trying to focus on outcomes, making sure that we're improving quality and benefits to patients. So it's not just about prescribing the right drug, um, but also, you know, what does the patient want? Will the patient take it? All those issues to try and make sure that we make the best use of the medicines we have.
0: If we're trying to improve outcomes for patients in their use of medicines, whose responsibility do you see medicines optimization as being?
1: Well, I think ultimately it's the prescribers, and therefore for the majority of patients it's going to be their GPs. But increasingly, of course, we rely on medicines management support for that working with us. And I think increasingly as well, and I think this is one of the things that was highlighted when the Department of Health began to look at this was the idea that the patient also has a very critical role in op- medicines optimization.
0: So the term's been bandied about. We've, we've got an idea of what it, what it means. What steps, certainly in England, have been taken to help the process of implementing medicines optimization?
1: Yes, well, I, think, I think one of the things that we highlight in the editorial is that actually progress has been rather disappointing. There is a prototype software sort of dashboard that's being rolled out, which um, demonstrates really how far along the journey of uh, developing certain milestones has been achieved by certain organizations. But it's, that's all we really have at the moment. And even that at the moment is, is being piloted. So I think one of the issues we have is that it feels like very little has actually happened uh, in the year that we've had since this all began to be talked about
0: we are expecting a national clinical guideline from nice that's due sometime soon so that might give it more of a an impetus than we've had had so far any other major barriers to progress what, what what what's hindered this well i
1: think i think the big issue for us of course is that the cost agenda may well get in the way of the quality agenda here um and i think a lot of medicines optimization teams are often finding themselves chasing ever smaller cost savings benefits rather than being able to have perhaps look more strategically and, and at a bigger picture at actually improving medicines management overall.
0: So bizarrely, if we, if we focus less on the money, we might achieve more by improving outcomes and reducing patients' use of health services because they're getting better use out of their medicines.
1: Precisely. I mean, it's always the case, isn't it? Short-term goals sometimes don't actually help with long-term aims.
0: OK, so we'll wait for the NICE guidance to be published and then perhaps revisit this again.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we'll have some, some interesting news about that in the future.
0: So the first main article this month is entitled Dilemmas in the Management of Osteoporosis. We've used this article really as a reminder of four key dilemmas. Dilemma one looks at identifying secondary causes. What What's the issue and what should we be doing about this?
1: Yes, I think one of the issues with osteoporosis has been that along came quaff about two or three years ago, and basically the quaff targets were if you picked up a patient with osteoporosis, they should be treated with an appropriate bone sparing agent. And I think a lot of GPs said, fine, that's it. What I must do, therefore, is do a DEXA scan. If I diagnose osteoporosis, I must treat these patients. And I think, unfortunately, because of that, and because for many GPs, the whole DEXA scan, bisphosphonate treatment options have come quite recently in the last sort of five years or so, it means that actually we, we've we missed that step of stepping back and saying, well, is this patient have bone disease for a secondary reason? Is there something I ought to be looking for, some other disease, um, some other diagnosis which would cause them to have bone density problems on a DEXA scan. So that's one of our dilemmas is reminding clinicians, step back a second, has this patient got another reversible cause for their osteoporosis seemingly, which actually would be better to treat than simply giving them a bone sparing agent.
0: So we're not saying that bone sparing agents aren't needed, we're just saying that before you rush into treatment, just think about any modifiable secondary causes that may then not require use of a bisphosphonate.
1: Precisely. That's that's the message. You know, these are good drugs. They prevent fractures. So it's not that we're saying that we shouldn't be using them. It's just hang on a second. There will be a proportion of patients, and that will vary in the population you're looking at, but there will be a proportion of patients who actually will have something else you ought to be managing rather than just treating them with a bisphosphonate.
0: And the second dilemma, case finding, what's the problem here?
1: This is the frustration I think public health in general have had in the huge numbers and and the the, the morbidity and mortality associated with osteoporotic fractures is a really big public health issue. And the frustration that I think we all should have as clinicians is that currently we have struggled to find a way of picking up the at-risk groups of patients, typically women postmenopausally, but other people as well, before they fracture. So is there a way we can case find people at risk, treat them, and prevent them having a fracture? And so one of the things we're highlighting in this area is the fact that whilst we have things like um, FRAX uh, available to us or there's now this new Q-fracture um, algorithm that we can use online, whilst we have these things which pick up those patients that might be at risk And whilst we have DEXA scans, which we can also use to create a uh, risk in the same way as we do with Q-risk for uh, cardiovascular problems in patients, whilst we've got this actually, currently, we don't have a lot of evidence that demonstrates that doing this actually is beneficial to patients. And we're still waiting for the SCOOP trial that's uh, currently uh, running, which we hope will be publishing, I think, later. I think it finishes later this year to be publishing probably in 2016, where they've done this case finding and they've treated patients. And we're going to see then whether we really can demonstrate some benefit.
0: And then on to dilemma three, which is the the one that many people have grappled with, is how long, once you're on a bisphosphonate, how long should you be treated for? What's the duration, the ideal duration of treatment? Do Do you start it and then carried on indefinitely or is there a case for stopping after a number of years
1: i think this is a dilemma this is one of those known unknowns as as perhaps we we should um say in the sense that we we know uh this is a problem and actually unfortunately we we don't have an answer to this really and one of the things we do in our article is describe what evidence we've got for stopping or not stopping bisphosphonates around five years so this idea of a drug holiday and and detail some of the studies or some of the subgroup analyses that have been done to try and look at stratifying risk in patients at five years to provide some sort of plan for, for patients who, who, who have been taking bisphosphonates. It is a difficult area, and I think what's useful in our article is we detail the evidence that's there. So we try and step away from opinion or step away from perhaps regurgitating the guidance and say look this is the evidence so at least you've got some idea of the bedrock on which some of these guidelines
0: are based on and certainly helpful for anyone who's obviously about to review the use of bisphosphonate or a medication do a medication review in any patient who's been on it for some time some of the pointers are worth taking into account when deciding whether to carry on with treatment or whether it's worth worth stopping
1: exactly exactly
0: And then finally, dilemma four, calcium and vitamin D. What's the issue here?
1: We just raised the thing, uh, the issue that we've had a number of studies. Some of them are not, you know, powerful studies. A lot of them have been cohort studies. So we've just got to be slightly careful. But there have been a number of studies that have just raised this concern that a high calcium intake may be related to cardiovascular morbidity. So because of that, We're just suggesting, you know, it might be pertinent if you're a clinician managing a patient with osteoporosis or managing patients who are taking a calcium and vitamin D supplement to just ask oneself, what is their calcium intake currently without the calcium supplement? You know, is it something where, you know, because the patient already has a pretty high calcium intake in their diet, you know, what's the clinical need for adding in, more calcium on top of that necessarily,
0: And certainly worth even, even where more calcium might be required, probably better to achieve it through dietary intake, if possible, rather than supplementation through tablets.
1: Precisely. And of course, I think, I think we're often here talking about elderly patients um, with dentures and a lot of the calcium supplements we use in primary care are large chalky tablets which are quite difficult for elderly people to take sometimes and compliance with them is often very poor and of course if they stop taking their calcium supplements they're going to stop taking their vitamin d supplement too and it may be that actually if you assess their diet make some small changes there you can actually still supplement make sure they're still having vitamin d supplements but of course these are much much smaller in size and probably much easier to take for an elderly patient
0: Excellent, thank you very much. So, four useful points of consideration just as a reminder of, of some of the challenges facing us with the management of osteoporosis. And our second article reviews a new formulation of Alprostadil for erectile dysfunction. We already know that Alprostadil is available for intracavernosal injection or intraurethral administration. What's the new formulation?
1: So, this is a cream which is just being marketed. And alprostadil obviously is a prostaglandin. So, unlike the oral phosphodiesterase type five inhibitors, this drug will actually cause an erection once it's been applied.
0: So it's another formulation of an existing.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So this is not, It's not a new drug. We've now got it as a urethral stick, an intracavernous injection. And for the man who doesn't want a a stick or a, a stab, there is the option now of
0: a cream. And outcome measures, efficacy has been assessed using both the fairly standard now erectile function uh, index scores and patient questionnaires. Did it work?
1: Well, this—I mean, you know—this is. It's always so disappointing when you look at these. So, as you rightly say, you've got the international index for erectile function. It has a range of 0 to 30, and if you have a score over 25, that's considered normal. And most, in fact, all agents tend to suggest that you need a four-point rise to consider something clinically relevant. And yet in the trials, the mean change in this score using the the highest dose, which is the dose that's available in the the UK now, the mean increase was 2.5 on that scale. The mean didn't reach perhaps clinical relevance. Now, actually, if you look at it, I think about 40% of users did achieve a four-point rise. You know, it, it does work for some, but, but the scores were not great.
0: And this is presumably placebo-controlled trials as opposed to comparing with an active comparator?
1: That's right. Unfortunately, like a lot of newly licensed drugs, we have some placebo-controlled trials that we don't have any comparisons with, other erectile dysfunction treatments that are available
0: currently. But those outcome measures sound as though it isn't quite as, or doesn't appear to be quite as effective as some of the other methods of uh, improving erectile function.
1: That's right, that's right.
0: Uh, any important harms that were picked up?
1: Well, the one that I'm afraid, I, I still slightly giggle at, perhaps um, politically incorrectly, but um, you've got to be careful of penile burning. Now, the, the actual... Uh, medication it doesn't say talk about sensation of penile burning it actually talks about penile burning but i don't believe it really means that your penis catches fire
0: so it's not an inflammatory issue
1: (laughs) no um also you can get some headache issues and i think the there have been some animal studies that have just raised the concern that it might have some effect on the seminiferous tubules of the testes now that hasn't been confirmed in man, but it's just raised that highlight that it may be an issue for for humans, and I think there are some further studies
0: to look at that. And as with all these drugs, apart from the now generic sildenafil, it's subject to the NHS restrictions on prescribing?
1: Yes, my understanding is that most areas have, have got a low priority for this
0: drug. Okay, thank you very much. And perhaps let's just pick up one item from Select this month, diclofenac over-the-counter, no longer available. What's the rationale and background to this one?
1: Yeah, so this is this is like the sort of the, the constant decline. It's a bit like the sort of Ottoman Empire quietly fading away. The diclofenac was the most popular anti-inflammatory 10, 20 years ago. Then there have been concerns raised by the European Medicines Agency and the Medicines Health Care Regulatory Agency in 2013. There was a a large review of its safety, and really the the outcome of that was that we'll be very careful about using it in certain patient groups, patients um, at risk of bleeding, but also the the concern that the review brought up was this concern of increased cardiovascular morbidity associated with it. It's now something which we as doctors have to be very careful about prescribing, and I think as a consequence of that also. It's now been withdrawn as an over-the-counter preparation from pharmacies.
0: Uh, Looking at its sort of history, we we know that the therapeutic dose from 50 milligrams three times a day seemed to be, the highest dose seemed to be associated with potential problems, uh, particularly increased risk of cardiovascular harms for some patients. The -the over-the-counter was obviously a much lower dose and for a much shorter duration. So perhaps some understanding or some recognition that was this a reasonable decision to make is it is it one of it just makes it simpler it's no longer available therefore there's no risk to anyone buying it over the counter or is it slightly an overreaction
1: i think it's probably sensible you know i think if you look at just the bleeding risk from these drugs and the propensity of emergency admissions to hospital associated with these uh, i think it was always quite brave when they began to provide these drugs available over-the-counter. So I think I think it is a sensible approach. Obviously, topical diclofenac is still going to be available, but uh, yes, I think it's probably sensible that anti-inflammatories still have a very important place, but, but that place is actually now a very small area, really, and it's, it's important that we probably reduce the prescribing and use of these drugs overall.
0: And I suppose from a community pharmacy point of view, you haven't got access to the full patient clinical records, So you don't actually know what their past medical history is. Of course, you can ask them, but you haven't got full access to be able to do a a risk of their cardiovascular harms associated with it. So perhaps, yes, you're right. it, It does make sense that where you are in that situation where you can't make a very detailed assessment of a patient's clinical history, it's safer to get rid of it.
1: I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or feedback, please email us at dtbeditor@bmj.com. And thank you for listening.